Friends, would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15? John chapter 15. You know that for this entire month, we're going to spend our time together on Sunday morning in the preaching, thinking about, praying for, studying the mission of this church to be disciple-making disciples in a church-planting church. We'll do that for the entire month of October, and then we'll return to our study of Hebrews in November. But right now, I'm going to read from John 15. I'm going to read a very famous portion of Scripture where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he's speaking to them with this upper room discourse hours before his arrest and his ultimate crucifixion and death. I'm going to read from John 15, beginning in verse 9. Hear now God's word. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Let's pray together. Jesus, what more could we ask than that your joy might be in us, and that our joy might be full? I pray that as we spend time with your gospel, as we understand the love that you have for us, that will fill our hearts, that will fill our minds, that will fill our spirits, that will animate our hands, and we will extend this kind of love to each other. Would you do that in our church? Would you do that in our midst? Would you do that in our city? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're taking this month to talk about this mission. Disciple-making disciples in a church-planting church. The reason we're doing this, the reason we're pausing here, the reason we're talking about this, even though we covered all of it in the new members class, is because vision leaks, of course. It's because when we sit down with each other and we talk about this mission of our church together and we begin to, to speak about every single person in this room has an active role to play in being a disciple, in training and growing other disciples, in winning new people to Christ and discipleship, I usually find we have two reactions. One is confusion, and then secondly, that gives way to sheer terror. I mean, we have confusion. What what exactly do you want me to do? I don't have a position. I don't have a Sunday school class. I don't have a line item in the budget. I don't have a title for this. What do you mean I'm taking an active role in evangelism and discipleship? There's just confusion. What do you want me to do? And once that becomes clear, it turns into fear. You want me to do what? I mean, you don't understand who I am or the gifts I have and don't have or where I'm coming from or my experiences or the fact that I've never done this before. That gives way to the fear of stepping out and doing this kind of thing together. And so it's worth pausing and spending this entire month to dig into Scripture to bring clarity and calm to this mission. What is God calling us to do as a church and how is he equipping us to do that? Well, when you talk about disciple-making disciples, the first half of this mission, there's actually three parts to that. There's the fact that we all need to be disciples. There's the fact that we all need to train and grow other disciples who are believers. And the fact that we want to see new people become disciples, people who aren't Christians right now. And we're going to give a week to each of those things. But today, very simply, we're going to talk about being disciples. And the thesis for today is painfully obvious. 
to win new people to Christ in evangelism, to train people in discipleship and Christ's likeness as we disciple them, to do either of those things, evangelism or discipleship, we ourselves first need to experience, know, revel in the fact that we are disciples, that we ourselves are followers of Christ, that we ourselves have been born again and experienced this kind of gospel before we try to multiply this thing among our neighbors. When I was in seminary, I worked in a coffee shop. I worked as a barista. And when I trained for that role, I had two very different shift managers who trained me in two very different ways. They couldn't be more extreme from each other. I remember it still haunts me to this day. My first day of going in for my first day on the job, I clock in, I put on an apron, and it's at a really busy time, which is the worst time to train a new employee, and the shift manager was already just a nervous wreck personally and professionally. And so I get in there, she throws me behind the espresso machine, which I've never seen up close before, and she's at the cash register screaming at me from across the store how to make each drink. I mean, this is the size, this is the shot, This is how much pumps of syrup go in each one. And I just remember thinking after my first shift, this semester I might learn biblical Greek, but I am never going to learn how to make a green tea latte. I mean, this thing is just out of the scope of my memory to know how to do this thing. Second day I show up for work, very next day I'm terrified to do it. Uh, I go in, that shift manager is off, so it's a new shift manager. I clock in, grab my apron, run over to the espresso machine, embrace myself for the day. And the new shift manager says, no, 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 we're not doing that right now. I want you to go grind some beans. I want you to make us a French press. I want you to go find a pair of seats, and I'm going to come join you in a couple minutes. And I'm totally embellishing this illustration. But it felt like we sat there for hours together. We laughed, we joked, we talked about our first drink of coffee. It it was beautiful. And I couldn't imagine a more stark example of the way we were talking about the mission of this coffee shop. I mean, the one was all shop talk, right? It was, these are pumps, these are sizes, these are shots that you give. This is the way you get a product into a client's hand and you get them out the door and on their way. And the other way of training was working with this subtle but radical principle If you start to love coffee, if you enjoy coffee, if you talk about coffee, then people around you are going to love it and enjoy it too. The moment we start talking about the mission of Columbia Presbyterian Church, we run the risk of the difference between these two kinds of ways of being trained. There's a way to talk about disciple-making disciples that gets an apron on everybody, that gets them in position, that begins to just give them tidbits about strategy. These are best practices to evangelize. These are best practices for discipleship. And then we all just kind of join the fray of ministry. And I bet with a room this size and the gifts that we have here in this room, We'd be able to do that. We'd be able to start some new things. We'd be able to run some new things. We would see results from those things that we started. But I suspect that over time, we would begin to get burned out. That each of us, personally, privately to ourselves, would begin to ask the question, why am I doing this? And why did I start doing this in the first place? And how quickly can I stop doing this? And one by one, we would begin to drift out of this church and into other churches where you can sit in the back row anonymously and not volunteer for anything. No offense to everybody now who's sitting in the back row. (laughs) 
But then there's this other way to talk about disciple-making disciples. There's another way to frame the entire conversation that really just drives us to fall in love again with the one who made us a disciple. There's a way to talk about this thing that makes us cherish Jesus who has first called us to follow him. And it's an opportunity for us to revel in that and to share that with other people. Now, just in case this sermon falls flat on its face today, it's the second one that we're after. We're after that kind of disciple making that makes us fall in love once again. But before we talk anything about evangelism or discipleship, we need to first talk about being disciples ourselves. What does this mean personally for me before Christ, before I can figure out how to multiply this among people that God has placed in my life? The seed for this kind of thinking and this kind of being in the world is in verse 12. Look again at this verse that I read. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, this is incredibly important. There's two parts to this commandment. You got the first half here, which says love one another, and you have the second half here, which says as I have loved you. And these two parts to this commandment are essential to each other. You cannot possibly have the one without the other. If you try to do the love one another without the as I have loved you of the gospel, you try to perform the command without the promise, then you are in danger of defining love by your own terms, right? It's divorced from Christ. It's divorced from the gospel. It's divorced from what he's done in our life and on our behalf. The as I have loved you, which should animate everything we do, that's put to the side. And we begin so earnestly to try to do this task to love one another. It sounds right. It sounds good. It sounds true. We begin to do it. But if it's not part of the gospel, then we run the risk of doing this thing on our own terms, by our own definition, and in our own strength. And when we do that, it has nothing to do with the gospel. Our knee-jerk mode of operation when it comes to love one another is merited love. It's love that's earned. It's love that's deserved. It's love that's reciprocated. It's love that keeps the score. We don't have to have anybody teach us this. Our hearts are naturally bent in this direction that we love people who love us back. We love people who can advance us. We love people who we can keep track of how much I've given and how much I've received from that person. We do that automatically without anybody saying anything to us. I think that's the reason why Paul, when he talks about love in that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, describes love in part, in large part, by what it is not. It's not envious, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not irritable, it's not resentful. I think the reason he has to go to lengths to tell us what love is not is because we naturally thought that's what love was. We would never say that, we would never say love is boastful. And yet we tell people all the time how we've loved another person. We would never say that love is envious, and yet we can't help but look at another longing to have what they have. We would never say that love is irritable, and yet we're dads who say we love our families and we stomp around the house in anger and irritability. We do all the things that Paul in the Spirit needs to tell us. Love is not that. That is completely foreign to the love that Christ extends to us, that though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
I love the assurance of forgiveness that we heard last week. It was from Psalm 130. I I rarely think about this, but John really highlighted it in his sermon. And Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. Now sometimes in our Christian lives, when we think about the love that God has for us through his son, it's nothing but sunshine and butterflies, right? It's this incredible feeling that Wendell Berry describes through his character, Jaber Crow, of his first kiss. It feels like the world turned upside down and poured all of its warm water over my body. If you're a believer, you have experienced these things, but there's other moments in our Christian life where you begin to think about the love that God has for us through his son Jesus, and we tremble in awe. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey, and he can forgive sins? I've spent my entire life keeping score. I've spent my entire life keeping track. Who is this new being that I'm being confronted with who is infinitely worthy of my allegiance and yet infinitely free to forgive its absolute absence in my life? When I encounter one like that, I tremble in awe. I've been forgiven that I might fear. The entire mission of Columbia Presbyterian Church to be disciple-making disciples starts with this. You need to be a disciple to make a disciple. You need to experience the as I have loved you before you turn around and try to perform the love one another. I don't want to sound overdramatic, but if you try to do the one without the other, you try to do this on your own terms and in your own strength, And you're going to entirely upend what we're trying to do here as a church. You're going to go in a different direction from the direction I pray that the Lord leads us. And you're going to preach a different gospel to the city than the one we find in scripture. Think about the damage done of a church that begins to work within a definition of love on our own terms. Think about if we started to organize ourselves, not around the gospel, but how we perceive love is to be done in and of our own strength and by our own definition. Here's just a few examples of what we might experience if we walked into a community like this, we were there for Sunday worship, we were there for the life group, we were there for the coffee hour, and we began to say, this sounds like a different gospel. Number one, we would be a cliquish church. Uh, A church that loves on its own terms can't help but spend time with people who look and talk exactly like them because love is self-serving and that serves us best. Number two, we would fawn over status, wealth, reputation, and talents. We would be greedy to grab a hold of the people who are beneficial to us. During the coffee hour, we'd look for somebody who we want to be friends with and not somebody who needs a friend because our natural mode of operation is reciprocating love. Let me find someone who will scratch my back and I'll try to scratch theirs. Number three, we would be very stingy with mercy. We would not spend our diaconal fund because we would be always looking for this mysterious group of people, the deserving poor. I have never met a deserving poor person and I have never met a deserving rich person because love is not merited and it is not responsive to those things. But if we're doing that, we're very reserved in the way that we give to one another. And finally, number four, I think we would be a place that hides our own sin. 
I know there's a lot of talk about transparency and openness and confession of sin. And there's a way to do that in broad strokes, right? There's a way to use the word sin to make it sound like we're a community of people that talk about sin. But then we talk about it in broad and vague terms. I begin to stand up here and confess, I'm such a sinner. I'm such a mess. I just don't trust in God's providence like I ought to. Uh, Whenever I go and do my McShane Bible reading plan, I usually skip the middle portions of Job. I'm a sinner and I do these things. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about spinning the word sin so that we come out sounding more righteous. I'm talking about real, raw, ugly confession of sin. Because if you get in a community of people that's loving on its own terms and you tip your hand that you're a sinner in ugly ways and everybody else is pretending to be sinners in polite ways, you might not be rebuked by these people. Worse than that, you might find yourself nudged out of the inner circle and nobody's calling you for anything in a place that defines love in its own terms, if you have shown yourself to be unlovely, you're disqualified for being a human being. Can you see how desperately important it is to keep these two things together, to keep verse 12 entirely intact with itself? If you drop these last five English words from verse 12, as I have loved you, and you try to put as a banner over this church, love one another, it becomes this pretty little phrase that is absolutely meaningless. You might find it on a presidential campaign protest poster, but don't bring that thing in here. It is a sterile, cut flower, house cat, pocket protector variety of love that doesn't cost anybody anything because it's what we have always done with one another. And what scares me most about this kind of love is not because it's quaint, not because it's self-serving, not because you can do it entirely in the power of your flesh without any assistance from the Holy Spirit, but the worst thing about this kind of love is that it preaches a different gospel to the city. Somebody can walk in this door, they can experience clickishness, They can experience fawning over wealth and status. They can experience a lack of mercy. They can experience this kind of half-hearted confession of broad strokes of sin. And they can walk out of this room because this is a church and they can say to themselves, I wonder if this is how Jesus loves me too. I wonder if this is what I experienced from his body. I wonder if that tells me how Jesus loves himself. Well, did Jesus warn Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to the person who walks into a fellowship that has the name church on it, in which people are animated in their own strength to define love on their own terms, and they walk out thinking that this is the gospel and the way that Jesus loves them. Lord, would you forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? Would you teach us to love as you have loved? Being a disciple-making disciple means first lingering over these five English words of the gospel. As I have loved you. 
the greatest work you can do in this church, the greatest work you can do in your family, the greatest work you can do in this city is to cherish for the rest of your life the fact that God in his marvelous love has delighted to send his son on your behalf to sacrifice himself, to take the whole of his sin on himself, to pay its penalty entirely and to never hold a single thing against you again. If you're wondering how to do that, how do I start to that? How do I get a handle on that today so I can go out of here and practice being a disciple before I try to turn around and multiply disciples? I just want to close with five things from this passage, five ways, five things that are true of Jesus's love. And as you hear these, pick one, pick two, get a hold of this thing and experience once again the love that Jesus has for you. Number one, Jesus' love is divine. Verse eight, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. To say that Jesus' love is divine is to kill like a dozen birds with one stone. Jesus' love is infinite. It's timeless. It's invincible. It's alien. It's unlike anything we have ever experienced on a horizontal plane with one another because it is not from this world. It is outside this world. It is uncreated. It is the very divine love of Jesus himself. Number two, in Jesus' love, we can abide. Verse eight again, abide in my love, he says. I love that description. Jesus' love is a place that you can make a home. Jesus' love is a place that you can always find yourself. Jesus' love is a place that you can lean on. Jesus' love is a place that no matter how lost you might feel, you can find where it is because you dwell in its very midst and in its arms. Number three, Jesus' love brings obedience. Did you hear this in verse 10? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, which sounds like merited love. It sounds like the exact opposite of what we've been saying. Jesus is saying, if you obey me, then I'm going to love you. But he has just said in verse five that we didn't read, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything apart from me. You can't obey without me. You can't believe without me. You can't be happy without me. You can do nothing on your own. You're like a branch that's not part of the vine. You can't do anything. And so all of a sudden when Jesus says, if you obey my commands, then I'll love you. That's not a contingency, but it's a promise. One of the gifts that Jesus gives in his love is he helps us obey. When we have been born again by Christ, one of the things we begin to experience is in fits and starts, we respond to Jesus' voice and we obey. And that's a fruit of the love that he gives us. Number four, this is my absolute favorite of the list. Jesus' love is his joy. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Do not press me on this theologically. If you ask me how Jesus responds in joy to the gospel, I'm probably just going to break down and weep. For God the Son to extend his sacrificial love on the cross to a group of people who have done nothing but rebelled against him, all of that makes Jesus irrepressibly happy. 
It makes Jesus joyful to give that kind of love. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross when he thinks of all he gave up to leave heaven itself, to come to earth as a man, to die a brutal criminal death on the cross and to extend this kind of love to us. He's not keeping track of the score. It makes Jesus happy. Jesus is happy in himself for the gospel. And so number five, Jesus' love becomes our joy, verse 11, that your joy may be full. Think about this for a moment. This mission to be disciple-making disciples, which mirrors the great commission that Jesus has commanded every believer to follow, that you're going to go and make disciples of all the nations, this is going to cost us our very lives. He bids us to come, and he bids us to come and die. If we're serious about this mission, it is going to cost us our lives. It's going to cost us our time. It's going to cost us our treasure. It's going to cost us our talents. It's going to cost us a clean house. It's going to cost us quiet evenings. It's going to cost us this feeling of other people being indebted to us. It's going to cost us this facade of being a sinner in polite ways. It's going to cost us our entire lives. But the one thing that the mission of Jesus is never going to cost us is our joy. It's going to give us joy. It's going to feed us joy. We might end this life without a penny in the bank or a house over our heads, but we will not end this life in Christ without his joy because that is the gift he gives us and that is the one thing that can't be taken from us. Jesus' happiness is our happiness. Jesus' joy becomes our joy. This entire thought of making other disciples is simply inviting another person into the happiness that we experience that is happening within the Trinity itself. The greatest work you can do in this church, the greatest work you can do in this city, the greatest work you can do in this family is to be this kind of disciple. Abide in this kind of love, experience this kind of joy, and everything else flows from that. Let's pray together. Jesus, this is so easy to understand and so impossible to do. I pray that you would spare us from being a bunch of busy people who get down to the task of trying to love each other in our own strength and on our own terms. And you first and foremost make us a group of people that cherish the gospel that you have first loved us. Would you do that miracle in our hearts and in our lives? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.